Zephaniah chapter 1. This is the word of Almighty God. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord but who also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate. A wailing from the second quarter, a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktish, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is the day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, And they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. 
Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we hear here the message from our King and this warning from our King as we await for his return. Lord, may your words long ago have great power upon our hearts as your Spirit now works them in us that we might have eyes to see, hearts to believe, and that we might look to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we uh, start this uh, new book of the Bible, and uh, I, I really struggled with how to break up the text. So this week and next week, our sermon text is the entire chapter. And I'm going to just leave out one or two major themes this week for next week. So if you don't feel like I've covered everything, at least give me one more shot. Uh, But uh, this week, I I want to get us into this chapter, into this book. And the first thing I think we need to consider is uh, this man, Zephaniah. We don't know much about him. Uh, but we are given uh, four, four generations of his forefathers. And that's not a normal thing. If you go and look throughout the prophets, for example, some of them aren't given any identification markers. They're just the guy. There he is, and he comes with the word of the Lord. Uh, others... Uh, are given just their father or their grandfather's name, but it is not common to receive great-great-grandfather. And we ought to pay attention if the Holy Spirit does that. There's often a reason. Now, in some instances, it might be a reason that would have been apparent to uh, the Israelites in the first three, four hundred years after that prophet, because they would remember households or families or locations And maybe we don't really know what it is. But sometimes it's quite clear. And although commentators hem and haw and say things like, well, there there were more than one Hezekiah, it seems quite obvious who the Holy Spirit is talking about. When in this verse we're told that great-great-grandfather of this man Zephaniah is a man named Hezekiah. And then we're told what day, what era, this man Zephaniah lived in. He lived in the day of Josiah, who was the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. It's the Holy Spirit saying to you, it's the same Hezekiah. And so here we have this, this prophet who is a cousin to the Davidic king. 
I think we have an amazing parallel in Zephaniah and Josiah to another set of cousins. A lot of the things we read of in the first three or four verses of our text here today sound like they could have been fulfilled in verses that we read with Bill earlier. I will consume the stumbling blocks along along with the wicked. I will stretch out my hand, cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the name of idolatrous priests and pagan priests. And we read with Bill that a young Josiah, when he was only 16 years old, began a campaign. And he tore down the false images, the stumbling blocks. He broke down the bales and crushed them underfoot. He killed the idolatrous priests and the pagan priests. It seems like we have a a herald for a king here. A herald for a king who is also a, a distant cousin of the king. And not surprisingly... This herald's voice sounds very familiar to John the Baptist's voice. Both heralds for a a Davidic king, both proclaiming that the first thing the people need to realize as this king is at hand is that they are in trouble. Both come with a warning and a call. Repent from the wrath to come. Both declaring that being an Israelite won't be sufficient to help you escape that wrath. Both calling for repentance, but both also ultimately pointing to hope. Hope. And both pointing to hope in the same king. Because, of course, Zephaniah's central focus in this prophecy is not to talk about what Josiah is going to do. No, he's a herald for Josiah's greater son. He is in the same office as John the Baptist. He's a herald for the coming Messiah king. And much of what we're going to read about in this short three-chapter book is pointing not towards young Josiah, but perhaps maybe by looking at Josiah, past him as if a signpost to get us to the, the greater king to come. And so after calling for repentance... In chapter 3, hope is put before us in the very king who is coming in wrath... Zephaniah 3.17, we hear the pinnacle of this. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. The king who's coming in wrath is the source of the believer's hope. John the Baptist's message is exactly like that. Repent, flee the wrath to come. And then the pinnacle of hope. Behold, 
the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Hope in the same one who will come in wrath. And so as we look at this book of Zephaniah, it's not a bad thing for us to spend some time looking also at John the Baptist's ministry. And I hope to make use of some of those passages for New Testament readings over the next month. But here we have this this pushing ahead, the herald to the Davidic king. We actually don't know when in Josiah's reign Zephaniah prophesied. Could it be that this prophecy comes first and then Josiah's 16-year-old campaign? Or it could be that these are sermons preached about the book of Deuteronomy after the book is found during Josiah's 20th year. A lot of this book has reflections of Deuteronomy in it. And Deuteronomy was apparently lost to them prior to the cleansing of the temple. And so it's, it's hard to place him there, although we can at least place in world history because Damascus hasn't fallen yet. So it is in the earlier half of Josiah's reign. Well, let's turn then to Zephaniah chapter 1 and look at its focus here. Its central focus is the day of God's judgment, the day when the covenant king will appear. And uh, we find find a lot of people warned about the coming of this king and the wrath he will bring. Verses 1 through 3 begins very broadly, and we'll come back to these verses a little bit next week. But verses 2 and 3, with this sweeping judgment that will cover the whole earth, nothing will escape, and none will escape. In other words, while Zephaniah may be pointing them uh, to some extent to the coming of Babylon against Judah in years ahead, that's not his ultimate focus. The judgment he points to goes beyond Babylon to the day when Christ returns as judge and the whole world will be judged. Man and, yes, beasts and birds and all will in that time be brought before the judge and there will be a a final day of reckoning for the whole creation. None, no human will escape. So who will he judge? Verses 2 and 3 make it clear. He's going to judge all. But then he gives us some specific categories just so that we don't skip right over that idea of none will escape. He gives us categories throughout the rest of the chapter. Now, the first category is the idolatrous pagan. We look at those who worship idols in verses 4 and 5. I'll cut down every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the hosts of heaven, the stars, moon, and sun on the housetops. See, the, the idolatrous pagan, the one who worships idols, those who worship not simply those carved images of stone and wood made by human hand in the image of man, who have eyes but cannot see, ears they have but cannot hear, hands and feet but cannot do. 
It's not only those who will be judged here, but all idolatrous pagan, those who worship the creation around them on their housetops. Any who worship another god. Verse 3 refers to these idols, whether they're literal uh, stone idols or whether they're just the imaginations of our hearts as the stumbling blocks. And I think that's an important title that God gives to the idols in verse, uh, in verse 3. Because our, our nature is prone to say, well, yeah, of course, how foolish were they? They, ha- they set up this statue and they prayed to it. Who would do such a thing? I, I would never do such a thing. And so we might look at idolatry as, as merely that outward action. And yet the, the worship of any false god, even if it's the sun, moon, and stars, and we don't give that the name God, just creation, nonetheless is idolatry. And it's a stumbling block. You know, when you walk through the woods, there's the, the, the rock or the, or the tree root, and you trip over it because you're not paying attention. And many, many will stumble into judgment, discovering that they worshipped a lot of things that they didn't think of as gods. Calvin begins his colossal work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, by commenting that the heart of man is an idol factory. And uh, we, we've created the, the production line quite well, haven't we? We can create one idol after another, and we bow down and worship them without there ever being a physical statue. But this chapter is telling us, this prophet is telling us that your idols cannot save you. No other religion can save you. Just one town over from here on a main part of the the street next to a church building, there's something that makes me cringe every time I drive past it. There's a collection of colorfully painted doors bolted together. Each door has a, a different symbol on it of a religion or or even just the peace sign. And uh, they're all bolted together and across it, it's uh, God's doors are open to all. Which is just another way of saying all doors lead to God. On the day of judgment, they'll find this coming king says, no, they're not. Indeed, he's already said it. The covenant king has said, I am the door. I am. And the way, there is no other. No one comes to the Father except by me. The idolatrous pagan, the idol worshiper, those who have a religion other than the true religion of the one living and true God. Just this morning I was thinking of in a wonderful series with a lot of excellent theology, the Chronicles of Narnia, the saddest moment regarding Lewis's presentation of theology to me is in the last book. 
He has a young man who has uh, worshipped Tash, a false god, his entire life. But he worshipped sincerely. He worshipped honorably. And so he gets in to paradise. Because when he was worshipping the false god, he was doing so, so, so honorably, so sincerely that he was really, although he didn't know it, worshiping the true God. No one is going to find that when the king comes in judgment. Many will find their door that they thought was the open door is a door slammed shut. Or is a door that leads a very different place than they had ever imagined into the wrath of the king. But you know, it's not just uh, the blatantly idolatrous pagan that's pinpointed in Zephaniah 1. In fact, while our thoughts all go there when we see a name like Baal, actually, it's a different category that Zephaniah is pointing at. There are plenty of idolatrous pagans in chapter 2 from very many nations. But in chapter 1, it's not directly idolatrous pagans he's pointing at. It's a category that I would call the syncretistic church member. The syncretistic church member. Notice how verse 4 begins. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And it's in that context that God says, I will cut down every trace of Baal from this place. From Judah and Jerusalem, I will cut down the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. From Judah and Jerusalem, I will cut down those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. And then here's the clearest statement of syncretistic worship in Israel. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also by Melchum. See what they did there? I'm not an idolatrous pagan. I've sworn and I've paid my oaths to the Lord. It's the Sabbath day. I'm at worship. I'm at the temple. I brought my sacrifice. I brought my tithes and my offerings. I'm here to worship Yahweh. Here to worship Yahweh. Yeah, on on Wednesday, I have my Milcom celebration. But on the Sabbath, I'm all the Lord's. Milcom, another name for this same Ammonite god is, is Moloch. There was child sacrifice associated with Moloch worship. And apparently a lot of Israelites thought, how, how convenient that the Passover lamb in my chief God's religion keeps my child from dying because after all, I need to be able to have a child to sacrifice to Moloch next week. At least this way, I still have, if I have two kids, at least I still have one left. Yeah, y- Yahweh's my chief God, but Moloch is is my secondary. He's my backup God, right? Second string. He's my safety God. 
in case Yahweh doesn't pay off. They can both be happy. What are you upset about, Yahweh? I'm still worshiping you. You're still my main guy. You're the great God. Moloch's just my lesser God. My moonlighting God. Syncretistic worship. Zephaniah is clear that it's not enough to have God in the mix. God is part of your life. He must have exclusive honor, not simply a part. Any who have their hearts divided, God and this. That's syncretistic worship. And God won't accept it. Well, we, we just sang a few minutes ago. I will worship him alone. We will worship him alone. So obviously we're, we're not going to have a, another God out there. None of you, as far as I know, I hope, also go and bow down to a statue of Buddha during the week. Or worship a tree. But the Bible makes it very clear that there are a lot more subtle ways of being syncretistic without ever calling something a religion. And Zephaniah 1 is very clear about that as well. Picking up on one version of syncretistic worship with half of the chapter. Verses 10 through 18 give us a specific focus of what syncretistic worship might be. And it's one that sounds a lot like the modern American church to me. Because verses 10 through 18 focus us on the love of money. Possessions. In verse 10, we turn to the the fish gate. It's not too hard to figure out the significance of the fish gate, right? That's where you would go to the market to get... Fresh, not just fish, other things as well, but the the fish gate was a market area. Wailing from the second quarter. Think of how that works in an ancient city. Your first quarter would be tightest in on the the temple and the, the, um, uh, the royal court. That would be your upper class. Then you'd have the second, uh, quarter, which would be the, the, upper middle class, the merchant class, and then you'd go down from there. So we have the fish gate, merchants, the second quarter, merchants, and the inhabitants of Maktesh, which was the market district of Jerusalem. And notice all the emphasis on goods and possessions in these verses. And yet verse 18 draws us to how it has become syncretistic worship. Just as in verse uh, Verse 4, God had emphasized that Baal, an actual statue, cannot save you. So in verse 18, he emphasizes, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. They were trusting in their money to keep them safe against the judgment. 
It was their idol. It was their heart's trust. It was their heart's hope. And maybe in a literal sense, if we think about the Babylonian captivity, these merchants were thinking, well, big deal. If another nation comes and is going to take over and kick David out, we'll just get in good with them. We can buy our way out of this. We got the money. It's not how Nebuchadnezzar worked. Nebuchadnezzar took, and you were lucky if you were still alive afterwards. They trusted in their possessions, their money, but it would not save them from Nebuchadnezzar, and it certainly will not save anyone on the last day. No one standing before the judge's bench on the last day will be able to say, well, God, I'll trade all my earthly goods if you just let it slide. What does Peter talk about? The burning away of all our possessions like dross burnt away. We need to be very cautious here because our possessions can become our trust, our confidence, our boasting. And the Lord will not share our allegiance. The covenant king said so. He said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And then there's a third category in this chapter. We'll come to a fourth category next week, but a third category, the last one for today in this chapter, of those whom the king will judge, and that is in verse 6, the apostate. We read in verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Apostasy. It's not a word you hear in the modern church very much. And I fear that's not because it's not a problem. It's because we deny it or ignore it, thinking it'll go away. This week, I, I was very saddened. I, I pulled a, what is a wonderful volume off my bookshelf, the, the Dictionary of Scripture and Ethics. I thought I would see what the Dictionary of Scripture and Ethics had to say about apostasy. What excellent article would be found in there? No entry. That baffles me. Because scripture talks about apostasy a lot. And it's a very ethical thing. What is apostasy? It's simply what verse 6 says. It is the turning away, turning back, turning away from God. To other gods, to the world, to agnosticism, to atheism, to whatever. It's the turning away from the one living and true God. It's not something the pagan who has never professed the name of God can do. Apostasy has to do with the visible church. 
It has to do with those who have either professed their faith personally or have grown up in the church with professing parents. And at some point, this individual chooses to leave the church and leave the biblical religion. You've heard the New Testament talk about it. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. God says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 6, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against those who have turned back. Of all the nations in the world, God had chosen Israel. Out of all of Israel, God had chosen David's line. And in an act of judgment on David's line and discipline, as well as a result of the sin of the people that the nation of Israel broke in two. And the ten tribes that left David's line, they, they're already in captivity when Zephaniah comes along. Judah, Jerusalem, that's what's left. These people were born in the visible church, in the congregation of those who were most the recipients of God's long-suffering grace. God says, in that midst, I found those who have turned back and rejected me. The covenant king warns in John 15, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now something I often hear those who apostatize from the visible church in our day say. Some of them are agnostic, that is, that well, I still believe in God, just not the God of the Bible. And some of them are full-blown atheists. There's no God. But what I hear both often saying in essence is, I'll never be touched by judgment. It's It's like the child who closes their eyes and believes that you all can't see me right now because I can't see you. But God exists. Whether we acknowledge his existence or not. And he has spoken whether we close our ears to his voice or not. And this covenant king continues to be the rightful ruler over all of creation, including those who have rejected him. And he has authority to judge. 
even those who rebel and reject his reign. The apostate will not escape on the last day. The best they will do on the last day, the book of Revelation tells us, is they'll cry out to the rocks, cover me. It won't do them any good. Not the apostate, not the idolatrous pagan, not the syncretistic church member. To all of these, the royal herald says in verse 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Zephaniah here, he's acting like the bailiff in a courtroom. The judge is coming. Stand up and shut up. That's what he's saying. He's coming. Show some respect. Be silent in the presence of the Lord Jesus, for the day of Christ is at hand. For Christ has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. That verse both warns and offers. It warns, a warning to those who are unbelieving and remain unbelieving, that they should tremble to hear this day approaching. What sacrifice has this king prepared? We good New Testament Christians, we assume every sacrifice always means Christ. But look at the context of the chapter itself. We, we will get to that sacrifice this morning. But first, look at the chapter itself. Verse 8. In the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's children and all as are clothed with foreign apparel. In that day, I will punish all those who leap over thresholds, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Notice it starts with the household of David, the princes. And it goes down to those who have masters, the lower class, before he goes on to talk, as we've already noted in the rest of the chapter, about the the middle class. No one will escape. But notice he's talking about the day of the Lord's sacrifice. And then here, verse 17, the second half. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Pagan worship often poured the blood out on the dust. God is saying the day of judgment, it will be like a gruesome sacrifice if you don't have a mediator between you and God you will be slain. It's a graphic way of depicting the New Testament doctrine of of hell. You will be the bloody sacrifice. Corpses everywhere. And verse 7 says, the Lord has invited his guests. Revelation chapter 19 depicts that day with the bloody corpses of the rebels all over the battlefield. And the king eternal calls to the birds and the vultures, and he says, come and feast. 
That's what Zephaniah is drawing our thoughts to here. And the covenant king once said, as we read in the parable with Bill earlier today, that none of the excuses will count on that day. None of the excuses. Excuses of money, the excuses of the idolater, the syncretist, the apostate, the excuses of of business that they had to conduct or the relationships that they were in that got in the way. He says in Luke 14, 24, the covenant king says, I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. None of those who rejected that invitation will get to take it back on the day of judgment. It's a solemn picture we have in Zephaniah 1. But there is that glimpse of hope. It becomes more apparent in the next chapter. But it's that glimpse of hope here, of course. Because there is, as the Bible makes clear, also a glorious invitation. The invitation of God the Father to the wedding feast of His Son. With this invitation, just as with the warning in Zephaniah 1, social status has no bearing. Just as many will be judged from the the house of David, along with the, those who have masters. So many who are the lowest servant will feast beside Josiah in that glorious feast ahead. The king sends out his messengers to the hedges and the gutters to compel sinners to come in. That's hope. Surely that's hope for us. None who reject the king's invitation will experience joy on the day of judgment, but all who come by the leading of the Holy Spirit, by the pleading of you in your evangelism, all who come wretched, weary, poor, and needy, who come in repentance and faith in the mercy of the King, will receive the beautiful robe of Christ's righteousness in which they will celebrate eternally without condemnation. The King has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. And yes, while Zephaniah 1 emphasizes a a bloody, gory sacrifice of the wicked... The New Testament in its invitation makes clear that all along God was holding forth a better sacrifice to save. The precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot to all who would believe and repent. And how wonderful is that blood? I like how Horatius Bonar summarizes this precious blood, the sacrifice God has prepared, he says, the blood of the cross is that which has made peace. And to share this peace, God freely calls us. This blood of the cross is that by which we are justified. And to this justification, 
we are invited. This blood of the cross is that by which we are brought nigh to God. And to this blessed nearness, we are invited. This blood of the cross is that by which we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And this redemption, this forgiveness is freely set before us. It is by this blood that we have liberty of entrance into the holy of holies. And God's voice to each sinner is to enter in. It is by this blood that we are cleansed and washed. And this fountain is free. Free as any of earth's flowing streams. All may wash and be clean. These are the good news concerning the blood. News that should make every sinner feel that it is just what he stands in need of. Nothing less than this, yet nothing more. End quote. The king is coming. All will be judged on the day of his appearing. Will you be condemned? Or acquitted. Acquittal comes in only one way. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the King to be your atoning substitute for sin. Look to the sacrifice that brings you into covenant with God. And then daily trust Him alone. Daily worship Him and Him alone. Daily serve Him with all your heart as you wait for his appearing.